welcome to the Recover You podcast with Kyleen and Patrick Terhune. It's here that we talk about sex addiction, betrayal trauma, mental, emotional, and physical health, faith, and anything and everything needed to recover you to your most authentic self that God created you to be. Hello. Hello. (laughs) All right, so we're back, and we're we're going to talk about shame today and the impact shame has, the role it plays in addiction, what it is, and what we can do about it. Yes, yes. So this is a big topic that you talk about in a lot of your men's groups. It's Mm -hmm. a primary driver of addiction. So why don't we go ahead and just start with what it it is. All right. Um, So shame is um, is essentially the... uh, the notion that you're a bad person, right? Essentially that what you've done, or not, not that necessarily what you've done, but you are the embodiment of either what you've done or what has happened to you or what somebody has done to you. So these things have happened to you because you are bad versus um, I guess the counter would be- You do things or things happen because of who you are. Because of who you are, right? Versus the sense of, hey, um, guilt would be, um, yeah, I did something bad, but I'm not fundamentally a horrible person. Yeah, shame right. is shame is I am bad. Guilt is I did something bad. Correct, correct. So it, it does go kind of to the heart of your of your identity, and so we all get um, we all get wounded, and it cre- and can create shame in our lives. And so it can happen as young as when you're a baby and you're disconnected, maybe from your parents over a period of time. It can happen when maybe somebody does something to you. Let's say uh, you get bullied on, on bullied in, in elementary school or your you know, infidelity. Those things can drive a big shame response. But then it can also come from if you've done something wrong. And, and people, you know, what's the phrase? You should be ashamed of yourself. You know what I mean? That sort of thing. And so it does drive a, a really big uh, problem in, in addiction and um, in people's self-worth and that sort of thing. So how does it develop? I mean, you just talked about that a little bit, but like, where does it come from? Like, how is it created? Okay, so um, it comes about because, um, uh, you know, I actually heard this example that you can create shame in a baby if you just break eye contact with them. And which is really crazy. I think I, I think there's a video out there where, uh, where a mom does that. You know, she basically stops smiling, she stops, and the baby, you know, the, the baby, kind of freaks out because there's a loss of connection there. And because babies are essentially narcissistic, not in a bad way, but you know, they, they rely on, on, you know, us for everything that when that happens, that, that the only message they can receive is that there's something wrong with me that would cause my mom to, to, to do that. So, you know, that's a, a big origin of shame. And we have these deep wounds, you know, throughout our lives, all of us do. We have, you know, the parents that come home that are maybe really tired from the end of the end of a day of work and you're really excited to see them, but they need 30 minutes to decompress. And so they go into their bedroom or something like that. And, and so you're left thinking, well, what's wrong with me? Um, that, that my, that my dad or my mom wouldn't spend time with me. And that's not at all what they're thinking. I mean, they're not thinking that at all. They just need that moment to, to decompress. Um, and you know, and that's, I think that would be in a non, uh, mean way, right? A parent who's distracted or whatever. 
um, through whatever. There are more uh, definitive forms where parents can't hurt, hurt kids through saying things to them. And I think we've all, <laughs> those of us who have had kids have said things to our kids that we're probably like, wow, they probably shouldn't have said that, especially as you start to look through it through the lens of shame creation. Um, yeah, when you understand trauma, you, you're like, oh, man, I've totally dramatized I know. Case. You're like, man, I wish I could do that I've all over that, yeah. again. Yeah. So a good example of where something could actually be uh, a, a message could be sent with well intentions that could lead to a shame creation is this happened with Keegan. So Keegan and I were together, essentially he and I, when, since he was like three years old to about eight when, when I met you. And uh, at one point, you know, after you and I met and everything, I said to him, I said, uh, Keegan, I really treasured those times because you really gave me a lot of, um, it was a goal to be able to spend time with you. And it really, you know, as hard as everything was in my life, it really lifted my spirits and you, and you really strengthened me. And I was being nice and I was being genuine and, and you know, open yeah. about it. And he took it as um, I, uh, once you and I met that I no longer needed him. Yeah. So that's a good example where something that was very well-intentioned imbued some shame on, on him. And so, um, so that was a, tra- a, you know, you could almost argue that was a trauma that, that he endured because of that. It was like, almost like a self-induced trauma. But another one would be if you were bullied, um, if you had a friend and all of a sudden the friend ghosted you um, and you don't really know why. Um, you know, there are some, some you know, relationships where, where parents are, say, incredibly horrible and mean and do some really horrible things to their kids. Um, and then just bad things happen. You can have an accident, the house can burn down, it's a loss of safety. And then when you do something wrong, um, there is a real, uh, especially as it comes in the, into addiction and specifically sex addiction, you really think you're a, you're a horrible person mm-hmm. and you are filled with shame over what you've done. And I think sexual addiction will drive a little bit of the, uh, I was a pervert and, you know, and, and people are going to shun me and this is a horrible thing that I've done and I've really, you know, destroyed so much and you're just really ashamed of that and while you're in shame it's hard to develop empathy both towards the people that you've hurt and yourself and you have to be able to do both in order to, to really grow into healing so um but that's i think that's the origin of shame and how it comes about yeah so when i talk about different emotions and how they are uh created negative emotions in our life i explain it how very similarly to how you explain it with but i go into a little bit of like the conscious and the subconscious so most of our emotions that we carry around and the filters that we view life through that we carry around happen and are created before the age of seven Mm. so that's when we're really absorbing everything around us. We're learning what experiences feel like. Our nervous system is beginning to identify um, what the different emotions and experiences are and putting labels to them. Mm -hmm. And so exactly what you said, something will happen when you're a kid. And let's just say abandonment is a great one, right? So um, your, your mom has, well, this is my specific example. My mom had to go to choir practice And I remember going, don't leave me, don't leave me, don't leave me, right? And in my little kid mind, that was like the creation of the feeling of abandonment in my nervous system. So then 
Um, what happens is your body identifies that it doesn't like it. It puts a little note on that. Then as you go through life, anything that registers that feeling, that sensation goes into that bucket of abandonment and, um, that those buckets that you carry around are called gestalts. These are like groupings of experiences Hmm. and emotions that you carry around with you in life. And these gestalts pile up and they pull in proof of these beliefs and proof of these emotions. So when you have an emotion like shame, that is, um, you know, essentially you've had experience that have quote unquote proven that that is true, that there is something wrong with you. You then move through life pulling proof of that. So once it's gotten deeply rooted, like with something with addiction, you know, you're just pulling proof, um, every time you act out, right. That's filling that gestalt. It's filling that shame bucket. Right. And so when we work with and we'll talk about the processes to um, dealing with these things. And there's many different ways, but one of them is to actually go back to the initial uh, event that created that emotion in your body, the initial time that you Mm -hmm. felt that when you were a child and processing that, because if you can process that experience, it can then translate into your life moving forward. Right. Right. That's good. That's good. I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah, so it was nice to learn that. You're learning some cool stuff that I do with my clients. Actually, if I could, um, Brene Brown has a really good definition on shame that I'd like to to read because I think this will kind of encapsulate that that really well. She says, I define shame as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we've experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. Who read that last part again? So something we've experienced, done, or failed to do mm-hmm. makes us unworthy of connection. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's interesting, she says, and subsequently she says, shame corrodes the very part of us that believes we are capable of change. But the 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 examples that we were giving that's so important, I think, to kind of reiterate is that this is the perspective. It's not always the reality. That's right. It's, the, yeah. it's how we felt and interpreted the situation. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of times when those are created in our in our minds and in our bodies at a young age, a lot of it, looking back as an adult, we realize, well, that's not the reality of the situation, right? My mom had to go to choir practice. That's right, yeah. <laughs> she, she came back and I ended up having a great time with my dad that night. I ended up remembering like a lot of connection with my dad mm-hmm. and, you know, we went to the park and we did, we played uh, shoots and ladders or whatever, <laughs> right, Candyland right. or something. Yeah. And it was, it was fun, right? And that was the beginning of this, negative emotion because of the way that it registered in my, with my perception, with the understanding and life experiences that I had up to that time. And so that's how that kind of gets carried through. Mm -hmm. And then we can look back and go, well, that, that was ridiculous, but it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter what the actual reality is. It matters how your nervous system and your brain and your body perceive that. Mm -hmm. And so what she was saying there in the end is, you know, it's it's these experiences and everything is how we perceive those that gets interpreted so is that why sometimes when I have to go do the laundry, you say, why are you abandoning me? Yes, it's yeah. because my mom left me yeah. when, I, yeah. <laughs> when I was I just want to assure you, I, I, I plan on coming back. Okay. I'm just doing laundry. Good. I did also process the emotion of abandonment recently, uh-huh. so. So we'll see less and less <laughs> of that statement being used. Yeah, yeah. Great. great. Cool, cool. Um, okay, so how, let's talk, because this is a huge, huge issue in addiction and betrayal as well. So how... Does it well? Let's talk about addiction first. How does it manifest with addiction? So I think um, you know the in the, in just the cycle of, of, of addiction. Let's say you're in the addiction. 
Um, more often than not, and I think this probably goes for any addiction, but I, I, I can I guess speak to it myself, is right after you act out, then you feel horrible, right? And that horrible feeling starts to set you up for the next period of acting out because you don't know how to process it without any sort of help. You're just in there trying to figure it out on your own and you're, um, you feel horrible about who you are. And so you're trying to, as it, as it brings you back around into this, like the only way you can deal with the deep, deep effects of shame is to medicate again. That's the only thing you know. And, you know, I would imagine it's, that's why people, you know, wake up in the morning after going on a bender and saying, I'll never drink again. And then at five o'clock that night, they're back in the bar. You know, same sort of thing. I'm, you know, that's going to be my last hit of cocaine. And then they're yeah. you know, buying it again later that day, you know. And so it's just it's because they, they, they you, you, you lack the tools. You can't identify the feelings. There's there's you know, there's no without any sort of help. You're just flying blindly and you're you, you're completely ill-equipped. From an from an act standpoint, right? Because what you're describing is that addiction cycle. Mm-hmm. So it goes through. There's some sort of trigger, which is typically like an emotion, right? right? So right. you're gonna feel um, sad or depressed or anxious or something. Mm-hmm. And in addiction, you're not used to sitting with those, processing them, and understanding right. them, identifying them, dealing with them in a healthy way. Mm-hmm. So then that that typically will over time, if that emotion stays right then there it triggers a um, habit pattern right. that then leads into the acting out that then triggers the shame, More shame that, again. that right. depending on where you are, sometimes will then trigger a purge cycle and then it'll start again. So there's a trigger and then the behavior and then a binge and then right. the right. shame and then purge and then trigger and then. Right. Absolutely. And then where it manifests itself post-discovery, let's say once you've gotten into that, you see the, um, and, and I've talked about this in an earlier podcast, how you know, the look on your face, and that was you know certainly the last thing I ever wanted wanted to do and seeing that look on your face generates you're like well only a horrible person would do something like that to you you know what I mean there's not you know there's not this nuanced feeling of like well I had these wounds and this is where the wound came from and you know like you're not going through it logically you're just like well only horrible people hurt other people and so because you're you know you're you're ill-equipped once again and so what that filled me with and I can I can speak for myself and I think it it's probably some similar pieces is um, I needed to get away from you. You were better off without me. And yes, I was going to be there and help you work through this, this thing. Um, but in reality, it's going to fall apart and it's better off. And I really worried about my own decisiveness because I was like, well, you just don't know how horrible of a person I am. And the more you recognize it and how much I've hurt you, it's just going to be better off that you're, you know, that you're alone. And it, and it, and it's really interesting because there were times when I was, um, I would, uh, you know, I remember driving around, driving home or whatever from work and you'd see like an apartment complex and I'd be like, I could, I could live there and that would just be better for everybody. And then she could go on and she'll meet somebody wonderful. And I, and you know, in my mind, I was still going to go through recovery, but I was, I would never date again. I like had gone through all these things. I'm never going to date again because all I do is hurt people. And so like it really manifested itself in like broader thinking that way. Sometimes in the moment, what it would do is if you had a trigger or if you were sad or you were angry, 
Um, and I, and I, <laughs> I think you would say it's a, and this didn't happen every time, but you would be like, I just don't want to be around you right now. I'm like, all right, problem solved. I can do that. And so I'd be like, Bye. okay, okay, see ya. And then off I go. And you were kind of like, where are you going? And I'm like, well, you said you didn't want to be around me. Like, how hard is that to process? You know? I, I, it wasn't even that I would say that all the time. I would just be like that wasn't even like every single time why mm-hmm. it was it I would just be having a trigger or, or a big emotional response to something mm-hmm. and that I was processing and I was talking to you about it and telling you how I was feeling in the moment it made you so uncomfortable and then you immediately went you're better off without me so it was like the the second the opportunity offered itself whether I stopped crying or um, I paused in the conversation <laughs> whatever it was you would literally yeah. just be like there's my opportunity I'm out bye yeah I remember being so convinced in my mind that um, and I think I voiced this to you a couple times um, that sometimes there are hurts that are so deep that you just can't get over them do you remember me saying that yes to you? and I also felt very often like you were almost trying to put that belief on me like it's really okay if you can yeah. You don't ever get yeah. to the point. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, I understand it. it. It is what it get is. Get to the point where you can forgive me. It's like, that's fine. Like, I get it. But I, it almost felt like you are putting that on me, like, as an expectation. Well, I don't know if I want to say that, but you brought that up a lot. As in, like, it's okay <laughs> that um, that this is the way it is sometimes. And it was like you almost expected that to be the outcome. Right, right, yeah. And, it, and it's interesting because I think you you don't, Feel, especially after something like this and you do a lot of like comparison stuff when you're a uh, when you're coming out of this you're like oh wow they just had a pornography addiction I mean certainly I was much worse and then occasionally you're like oh that guy's worse than me you know what I mean you're like oh okay yeah you know what I mean or whatever not yay but like um I'm so, okay I'll yeah be, I'll be all right. yeah I'm okay so I mean that was really a process and it took a long time to work through that and I think um one of the things that, that shame, you know, I talked about it, you know, as far as demonstrating empathy. And I, and I and I started saying this to the groups early on when we'd start on lesson one. And I'd say healing is the deliberate and intentional elimination or reduction and elimination of shame in your life. Yes. You know, and so that was my. Well, my I mean, you just basically established that it's a driver of the behavior itself. Right. right. So and it, it and when you're talking about recovering from addiction, we're not talking about dealing with, we are talking about dealing with the behavior, but we're not talking about dealing with the behavior by itself because it's not just a, a pattern, a habit of behavior. Mm -hmm. It's the underlying shame and the beliefs and the emotions underneath it that actually like flip the switch for the patterns to start. So healing would, in that case, if that's true, then healing would require that shame and the negative emotions are addressed. Okay, so let's talk about how shame shows up with betrayal. So um, it's it's a very different, so shame is obviously what drives the addiction, but with betrayal, it's something that is put upon us. So it showed up a lot in the beginning because it was such such an embarrassment and something it's interesting because shame is typically the belief that um i did something wrong but and and you as a betrayed partner absorb that even though logically you know that i didn't do anything but you still feel immense shame and embarrassment when you go to a support group or you go to a therapist for the first time and you're sitting there and they're like, well, why are you here today? And you have to sit there and go, well, my husband is a sex addict. I remember sitting in 
the first couple support groups that I had where we would go around and introduce each other and it would turn to me and I would just get all flush and it was so uncomfortable for me to even share the story and to talk about it and um you know you go into therapy and you have to start talking about what you've discovered and the idea that people are going to know that this is part of your life is like just so shameful and it feels because you know we're married and we're together and we live together that somehow this is a negative reflection on me, even though, you know, as you learn about it, you understand it has nothing to do with you or or the home environment that you've created or anything like that. But in your subconscious mind, there is a belief that needs to be dealt with because that, that emotion is very present when you go through the discovery and you, you, do isolation I think plays a big role in addiction but it also plays a big role in betrayal as well and isolation can obviously trigger that as well shame so um with betrayal you just go well nobody's gonna understand me nobody else is experiencing this so if you feel alone in that you know that's so hard to deal with and so part again with a betrayed spouse part of the healing process is dealing with that, dealing with those emotions, recognizing that you have nothing to do with it. Um, It's not shameful for me to say my husband was an addict. By the way, I don't say my husband is an addict anymore. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we should maybe do an entire episode on that. But it's not shameful for me to say that anymore because um, we have done the work Mm -hmm. and come out of it. And I've really processed my emotions enough to the point where there is like no stress response when I say that anymore. But the stress response came when I was very new in it and, and shame was, I think, really great at first. I actually, really as you were talking, you know, you used to always be very effusive in your praise of me on social media. And I wonder if that was something that contributed to the shame because it's mm. like, well, how did I, how did I miss this? How could I miss this? And you didn't do it a lot, but you would ask me on occasion, well, am I not, um, pretty enough or whatever. You didn't do it. I actually give you credit. You didn't do it that often. Um, I think you, you had, I think you were able to make that separation pretty quick that it wasn't. And I think I, I told consciously, you consciously. Yeah, consciously. And I think I, I, I don't think I ever subconsciously that took a lot longer for me to process. Right. Right. Because yeah. internally that, that just the feeling that that was true was not registering on a deep, deep level. Right. Right. Um, but no, I mean, that, that's true. There is a lot of shame because it, it, there, it does come from a place of, I thought I knew the life I was living. I didn't, obviously. It, the life I was living was not the reality I thought I had. Mm-hmm. And there is a lot of shame in that because it's like, how could I know this person for nine and a half years and suddenly find out that the secret has been part of our relationship the entire time? Right. And you're right. I did. I held you on a very high pedestal. And I talk about this when people interview me for podcasts and they want to know the arc of the story and how this happened. I mean, I really viewed you as a, as a specific type of person full of character and integrity. And I had you kind of up there. And so there's a lot of shame when you're constantly, uh, professing your love about somebody when you're constantly building I was building you up to my friends and family all the time. Like I never had anything to complain about. Right. right? And so I went from, I I'm literally married to the perfect person to Holy crap. 
he's been a sex addict for a decade. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, so there's a lot of there was a lot wrapped up in that for sure. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, though, healing is a dr- a big piece of healing is addressing the shame. So from your perspective and your experience, what does that look like? So, you know, there's, there's, uh, essentially, you know, a lot of people will say this, and I think the conqueror says this, there's four parts of what keep you in addiction. And the first one is the root of it, which is your wounds, right? The second one is the shame that keeps you there. The third one is, um, engaging in like a binge purge cycle. You don't really ever address it, but maybe you stop for a while. Um, then the fourth is denial. So you, you know, we all, um, will try to tell us that maybe we're not that bad or we'll be able to quit once we get this next thing or whatever. Um, but the thing is you have to address all four of those essentially to, to, which is interesting. How do you address shame? We have to address shame, but you know, you start to, you start to look at those things and like you talked about the things where you were wounded and you know, what did that mean about you? And you start to do the, the both and, um, uh, you know, I thought you were reaching out for my hand. Hi. Um, the both ends. So like, you know, and I remember there was a particular story. I'm not going to go into it, but where my therapist who, you know, it was about my mom and my mom is a wonderful, wonderful person. And, um, my therapist, I was like, yeah, but she, you know, she didn't mean to. And he's like, she did love you, but she hurt you. Yeah. And it was a recognition at that point, And that's where you start to be able to move past it and say, okay, I see how I was hurt there. And now I can start to address it. So, you know, sometimes you have to be very deliberate. And there are things like trauma eggs that you work all the way through. I was going to ask you to specifically talk about that because um, to say, hey, address shame by addressing shame and addressing. Mm -hmm. Let's get specific. So um, in in trauma therapy, one of the things that you did was create this trauma egg, which is exactly what you're talking about. You walked through and said, hey, these are the experiences in my life that have elicited these specific emotions. Mm -hmm. And then he actually did exercises with you to help you process each one of those, right? Right, right. And so the, uh, you can do it, and basically the trauma egg is like you go at the bottom of the egg is like a pictorial uh, representation of of things bad that have happened to you. And you kind of spend some time on it and Mm -hmm. you really fill them in from the most you know, the oldest one to the most recent. And you're right. You go back through, you try to create some connections in there. Well, is this one related to that one or whatever? And then you process through them. And so in my case, we did EMDR, we did brain spotting. We did, uh, you know, a lot of those kind of different modalities to help me work through that. There, there's another way to, 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 to do it. And, you know, this is what the conquer program do, does. They tell you to list your 10 worst moments and the vow that you got out of that. So, you know, for example, one of my um, one of my ten worst moments was I I was told at one point that I lack sex appeal, right? So the vow then is I I'm not desirable, right? So that's a vow, and that's a that's a that's so basically a that's a, a, yeah. a lie, a belief that was created. So in the work that I do with my clients, we would call that a limiting decision mm-hmm. that was created mm-hmm. from an event and an experience. So you have right. limiting beliefs and decisions that are created from the experience. And then you take that on as truth and as part of your identity moving forward. That then, again, creates that filter. Now you were walking through life pulling proof for the fact that you were unlovable and engaging in self-sabotaging behaviors because of how deeply you believe that. Right, right. And, you know, if if I was unlovable, well, then why would you want to be with somebody who's unlovable, right? So then you start to to actualize that stuff. And so subconsciously in, in, in a lot of ways. So you, know, you have to go and you have to catalog the things in your life that have hurt you. You have to really get to it. And it takes work. It takes, 
you know, they talk about, you know, it takes, uh, you know, detoxing, you know, and certainly a, a sex addict doesn't have to detox from a chemical, but they have to detox from the shame. And so that's what, what you're doing through that process is you're finding those things and having either, you know, a program that helps you in group or whatever, or a, a therapist or somebody or a coach that can kind of walk you through how to address those specifics of shame. Yeah. So I would say the same thing. Mm -hmm. So I also did uh, trauma therapy, EMDR, and then I moved into the emotional processing that um, that I do now. And mm -hmm. it it works very similarly to EMDR and brain spotting. So what I like about so what I do with the subconscious reprogramming uh, and what other pr providers will do with EMDR and brain spotting that is all working like on a subconscious level. Mm -hmm. And the reason that's important is because all of those emotions and those events and those um, feelings are stored there. That's where your traumas are stored is in your subconscious. And so for me, uh, I did do EMDR for a long time. And then when I moved into this, it's interesting because we actually have um, a specific exercise called addressing the big six, which I call the primary colors of emotion. So we address anger, sadness, fear, hurt, guilt and shame. So guilt and mm -hmm. shame are the last two. Right. And basically what you do is you go back, you're, you, you ask your brain to take you back to the moment um, that that was created in your body. And we, we deal with that. We take any beneficial information or learnings that we need to from that event in order to retain that. We process that. We let it go. We do whatever it is that we need to, to mm -hmm. deal with that in the moment. We take all of those beneficial learnings and we apply that to um, our life from then to now. And it, it really is amazing, though. I don't know if you experienced this when you were doing EMDR and brain spotting. But um, for me, when I was doing the emotional processing stuff, the weight that it lifted out of my body. And I'm totally convinced uh, after working in like functional medicine coaching for so long <laughs> that uh, the emotions weigh so much more than all of these other things like nutrition does in our bodies. They're, they're mm -hmm. all important. Yeah. Getting good sleep, eating good food, all that's important. And if we're ignoring our emotions, it weighs so much in our physical body uh, that it ends up really limiting our ability to be as healthy as we want to mentally, emotionally, and physically. Right. So processing these was really interesting because it was very similar, but also very different processes that we went through. Yeah. Um, and every time that we would continue to release emotions and process beliefs, it just lifted a weight off of us. Yeah. So how do you think the um, resolution of shame has shown up in your recovery and maybe even in our relationship. You, yeah. you touched on a little bit how, how during mm -hmm. recovery it kind of impacted you, but yeah. as I can, I think I could probably identify a lot of different ways that it has showed up, but yeah. I, from your perspective. So um, I was actually thinking about this as, as you were talking on, on the last piece, I was listening. I'm going to ask you about, um, but it, it, uh, I remember as after discovery, not only did I start to feel like I was a horrible husband, but I was a horrible father. I was a horrible you know, manager. I had been a horrible company commander, which was like 21 years ago. Like it, the blanket of, I was a horrible brother. I wasn't attentive to my mom when she was dying of cancer. You know, like it started to, to mm. like. None of that's true, by the way. Yeah, right. Yeah. So it's like, and then, but what I've noticed is as I've worked through this, those aren't there anymore. I'm like, no, I'm a pretty good boss. And, and yeah, I had this thing, but man, I really tried to be attentive to you, 
you know, when you were going through cancer and, and yes, I, I need to address this and I need to call it for what it was, but mm-hmm. man, I tried to be present there for you. And I tried, you know what I mean? And Keegan, I, I think most people would look at Keegan and my relationship and be like, no, you guys have a really good relationship. Like you did a lot of things with him. And, mm-hmm. and so I think we've talked about this before too. Could it have been better? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and that doesn't diminish the effort that you put in at the time. Right. Right. Yeah. So, and you know, it's, it's one of those things, like if you have a, you know, if you have a, um, a boil on your foot, you know, you, you maybe still walk, but it's harder to walk. And that's what was happening to me. Right. You know, I was present. I was still able to, to, to be there and provide and do all of those things, but I wasn't as optimal as I could have been. Yeah. Because I would, I would say it was fascinating to me what a highly functioning addict you were, mm-hmm. how high functioning you were. Yeah to the point where nobody knew and nobody could tell if they looked at your life and the things that were happening in your life and the way life was going for you. And things have tremendously exploded in terms of success in all areas of your life since you've gotten into recovery. It's dramatically different. So when we were in it, it's not like you could pinpoint and be like, oh, this person is living in addiction. But once the addiction was gone, the difference before and after has been huge like right. very obviously noticeable yeah 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 and and uh I've in thought, all areas like how like you right. were saying i was present you're more present yeah like it you can really in, in business and mm-hmm. in life and in relationships yeah. all of it yeah and you know keegan and i were able to talk about some very vulnerable things you know yeah. and it was it was tough for him to and it, i you know i traumatized him through this it's tough for him to go man my hero was not my hero but as we went through it, well, now I've become his hero again because, you know, I, I'm vulnerable and I'm open and I've been able to address something. Mm-hmm. And so, it, you know, I think we all go, yeah, I wish that we didn't have to do that. I mean, and that's real. But, but yeah, I think, I think I just feel, I feel like I can sit in my emotions more. I recognize them more. Um, I think, you know, I, I went yesterday and spoke to a, a church men's breakfast about the Conquer Group. And those conversations used to grip me with fear and I'd have to write it out word for word and all that stuff. This time I just wrote like four questions on a paper and, and I talked through it and they were like, that was a great presentation. You know, so I'm so much more comfortable talking about it. It is what it is. Mm-hmm. And I, and I know the statistics, yeah. you know, I'm not, I'm not the only person in the world that's had to go through this. And so I just feel, you know, I feel, you know, how, how does healing show up? It's showing up, I think, in all of those things, it, it, you know, perspectives are changing you know, curtains are lifting, um, and, you know, and sometimes you have success in work and, and, you know, and stuff like that. Well, I think you should tell about the plant uh, in your office. Oh yeah. I had this plant in my office and it's like once, once I started to get into recovery, it's like, it was dying basically, right? It was before, before this came out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember it was like literally within the first couple of weeks, I think you came in, you told me, you're like, my plant in my office is thriving again. Yeah, yeah. Talk yeah. about energy. Well, and I often think about this and that used to hit me. I was like, I have this plant and, uh, and, it, and, you know, we, we've struggled through the years because it just, you know, sometimes business struggles, but the plant really thrived over the last two years. And, and, you know, it kind of makes sense if the head of the, of the plant is sick, well, then there's going to be some I was sickness, talking about a specific, know. like an actual plant, like your green plant. No, no, you're right. I'm talking about both. Yeah. There's a manufacturing <laughs> plant and a green plant. Yes. Yeah. yeah, okay. yeah. But both, but both, both have. Both have. Right yeah. Now. Yeah. I mean, it went from, you know, I, and, and I, I had some responsibility taken away from me in 2018 and I, I attribute 
some of that to, to this, you know, to, to this addiction. And, and, uh, you know, since that time, there's now opportunities coming up, that, mm-hmm. you know, because of perspective and, and things like that. Yeah. And from my perspective of healing, um, I mean, I think one of the most dramatic, and, and obviously this is not something that everybody has to go through because not everybody is going to have a platform. Not everybody is going to want to speak about this publicly. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that uh, really, to me, demonstrated a lot of healing is as I went through it, the more comfortable I got talking about it right. and the less I care about um, you know negative trolls on social media yeah. or negative comments or um, things like that. I, on social, I kind of always had the perspective of, hey, if you want to have a conversation or disagree, I'm totally fine with that. But, um, you know, I really, in the process of getting ready to come out and share a story and say, hey, we want to help people and, hey, there's a process for healing and, hey, this is what this looks like and we're ready to go. Like, I really had to process a lot of my fears and my insecurities and my shame and my embarrassment so that if somebody made a comment, it wasn't going to trigger an unhealed wound inside of me right. because that's really, that's, that's what triggers are, right? If we get triggered yeah. by something, it's because there's something inside of us that's not dealt with. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, like people can say things and it just rolls right off, right? So I knew that and doing all the work that I do now, I worked with my coach to basically address anything that I thought would be triggering to me that someone could say mm-hmm. and ended up real that was tremendously powerful and helpful because when we got ready to share our story I I was like this is great I don't really care mm-hmm. what you know if I get negative feedback we're doing this for a purpose there's right. a reason behind this there's a mission behind this and I'm ready I'm ready to do it we were we waited mm-hmm. a period of time but we had to we really kind of together had to make a decision of when was the right time mm-hmm. to do it and we thought we were going to do it maybe even like six, four to six months earlier. And we, and we pushed it we back waited, yeah. and we kind of thought through that. But, but for me, I think for both of us, that's what it's looked like feeling stronger in who you are and mm-hmm. who, what your identity is and what your purpose is. And, um, really when you have that mission, you have that vision and the shame is dealt with, mm-hmm. then that other stuff doesn't really matter. It yeah. doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt really. Well, what's interesting is, is, uh, um, people will get angry and they did. And we have friends who, who did get angry. And uh, some people didn't think it was that big of a deal, and that's okay too. Um, to us, it was a big deal. You know what I mean? It was. It was. I, I wouldn't. I always try to tell those people like what I was feeling inside was not not a big deal. It was. You know, this was this was really dangerous, and it was going to do something bad. You know, it had already done bad things, but it was going to do something a little bit more bad yeah. and tragic. And um, but everybody loves a redemption story. You know what I mean? And people really really like that. And when you can put that together and talk through that and and start to show people and I often think about that when I go and speak to other men I'm like I really want it to come across like look at how free I am and look at how happy I am yeah and I think you only get that way by addressing shame Mm -hmm. I think that's the only way because people you know people will see it because if they're in shame because they're in the cycle they want to see is it worth it that's a good point because I have often said that I never wanted to be the beacon of hope for misery for couples that wanted to recover. Mm-hmm. And the reason that was important to me is because I did there, there are very few people out there that are willing to go public with stories like this. And there are even fewer couples that do it together. Right. And occasionally when we would see couples share their story, we just looked like looked at them and saw you look miserable. You look miserable. You don't yeah. look happy. And um, I never really associated that with not processing a shame fully. Mm-hmm. Um, but that makes a lot of sense. 
because if they are not fully comfortable in embodying the story and, and just in like, we've dealt with this, the shame is dealt with, like we're, you know, if that is not all processed, then that is going to come through in your body language and your energy and your, your emotions and how you express yourself. Um, and yeah, we really did that. We, we, we thought that was really important. It's like, but also not just for, you know, public perception, it's more for, um, even like the, the, where we wanted to go in the relationship. And, and I very much wanted to hold this high bar of, Hey, I don't want to go back to where we were. I want it. I want it to be better. So I very much did not want to go back to where we were. I wanted to make sure that if we were moving forward, um, that it was going to be a better relationship. Mm -hmm. And, um, and we both learned through the healing process and the different modalities that we used and the different practitioners that we worked with that in order to accomplish that, it really does end up being like no stone goes unturned because if you have those unhealed wounds and you have that shame or you have that guilt or you have that trigger still in there, then we're just constantly going to be triggering each other and feeding off of that and feeling unsafe and feeling embarrassed. And, um, so we, and maybe at that point you should split up if, if you feel that way. If that's all the relationship turns into, you know what I mean? It's just that without that kind of healing, you know? Right. So we, we essentially went, it was, I would say it was an agonizing process of figuring out, okay, what is this belief and what is this wound and what is mm-hmm. this emotion and, and dealing with all of that with yeah. the tools and resources that we had. And, and then you help um, men do it through the support group as well. And, right. and right. you were talking about some of those tools too. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's really important. You know, the, the the story we were telling about me being like, all right, I'm out. Um, teaching men to stay, and there's a uh, to stay there and take and hold, be the container for your trigger, and that's a really really hard thing to do because you caused it, right? And so, but there's a a lot of learning that's in there. The first one is. You know, you, you can now be the man that, that you should have been, right? And you can stand there and do that. The second thing is it is it takes a lot of empathy in yourself to recognize that, hey, this is not based on my current actions. This is based on my past actions. And I'm not that, I'm not doing those things anymore. And this is still you working through a process. And so I can stand here. It's not that big of a deal. Um, and I would even say that even if the relationship ends, it's like, you know, you, 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 and there's, there's some really good, good, uh, people who come on podcasts who actually got divorced and they've gone on to do tremendous, wonderful things. Um, you know, I, I'm thinking of the one gentleman at Pure Desire that, that's in a lot of that stuff, but you know, he, it's just, you know, sometimes there are earthly consequences and that's just the way that goes. Um, but it, it shouldn't sends you into a spiral. You know, you have worth, you have value, and you can have an impact on people as you address it. Anything else you want to talk about, Shane? I don't think so. Okay. Did we forget anything? I don't think so. Okay. All right. (laughs) All right. Well, we hope this was helpful. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this podcast interesting or helpful, it would mean so much if you leave a five-star review or post a screenshot and share on social media. We are on a mission to share the message of recovery and you can help get the word out. If you know a friend who could use this podcast, please share it.